celebrate when we come on Easter Sunday and resurrection, we think about the central claim of Christianity that Jesus died a horrendous death and then lived. Not only is this remarkable in itself, but it it also proves that everything he said about himself was true. Let me give you an illustration. As you know, Britain is well known for its beautiful food. Especially if you like kind of stuff that can often be described as bland and maybe a little stodgy. But I I love it. I, I love all that kind of, even the color of it is is just captivates my soul. Actually, we have really good chefs coming from Britain, if I think about it, you know. But imagine that I, my, I claim, being, you know, that, that, that I am the world's best chef, that I can just make the most magnificent meal. It will blow your mind. You will never have tasted anything like this. It will be revolutionary to your taste buds. That's quite the claim. How am I going to prove that to you? You're going to say, okay, Glenn, bring it on. Let me taste it. Make me a meal. Cook me this magnificent, taste-bud-blinding, revolutionary meal. And so I pull all this meal together and I make this meal. That is the only way that I could prove my claim of being the world's best chef to you is true is by making you a meal and by proving to you what my words say are actually right. You see, Jesus rising from the dead not only is a remarkable thing itself, just like that world-class chef, it's proof of everything that he said beforehand was true. It was his proof of what he said was true. You just, just dip these lights a little bit for me, Drew, just so I can see a little bit. You see, the thing is, is if this story is false, if the story of Jesus Christ rising from the dead is false, false and it's just been made up by people who are lying and perhaps experienced hallucination even if you believed in history at all if it is false then it's just like any other religion christianity just becomes another option for humanity to consider and to think about whether or not it fits in with their value system if this story of jesus rising from the dead is just made up then christianity just becomes like any other religion However, if this story is true, if Jesus Christ really did live and really did die and really did rise from the dead, it proves everything that he said about himself is true because dead people don't rise from the dead. Not after three days. And if it's true, if this story of Easter is true, then it proves that he was everything he said he was. And that changes everything. It changes everything. Man, woman, child. Whether you are a Christian or whether you are still trying to figure out what it is that you believe, it changes everything. Christians, it changes everything because it makes Jesus and all his claims true for you. Everything that he said about himself becomes true for you. So therefore, we have to look at our life in comparison to his life and his teaching and say, okay, does my life align with that? Do the words of my mouth actually align with the actions of my day to day? Is Jesus Christ ultimate or is he just unnecessary? Because, you know, I can function quite well without him, thank you very much. 
You see, as a Christian, it changes everything if Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. If you are wondering what it is that you believe and you're just a truth seeker, we are glad that you are here this morning because this is a good Sunday, and next Sunday is, a good Sunday to come to church because it changes everything for you too. Because it causes you to consider whether or not what you are basing your life upon is true or whether it's a lie. Whether you actually think those things that are going to eventually save you, give you peace, give you joy, give you fulfillment, actually going to fulfill those promises. Whether or not now is only now or whether there is an eternity. And if there is an eternity, like Jesus Christ said, if there is an eternity, what are you going to do with that? Because it would be the height of foolishness to go, oh, well, I'm just going to consider that later on. Because the reality is, is that life is frail and we haven't got the choice of whether to leave it for later on sometimes. So whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian or a, a, a truth seeker, maybe you're an agnostic, you know, you're just hedging your bets. Or whether you're an atheist and just really angry at God that you don't believe in. Then it causes us to consider if Jesus rose from the dead, it proves everything he said about himself was true. And if everything he said about himself is true, it changes everything. It causes us to actually consider this becomes the most important question that we can ask. Not just this morning, but in life and in eternity. It would be foolish of us just to ignore this question. Is Jesus who he said he was? Because if he was, it changes everything. It becomes the most important question we can ask. I think I left my water down there. So, in order for us to help us answer this question, I want us to focus on a character in the New Testament. And his name was Thomas. Thomas was one of the disciples... And Thomas, there's a, there's a certain description that, uh, that follows Thomas everywhere. It just comes just before his name. And, and, so, and what is it, everyone? Doubting Thomas. Just imagine, I feel a bit sorry for Thomas. Just think about this just for a second. Imagine if your name had a descriptor added to it. And that descriptor was the highlight of what it is that is, that is problematic with you. <laughs> I feel sorry for Thomas. Because for the whole, now for 2,000 years, Thomas has had this, oh, doubting Thomas, Thomas who? You know, Tom. I don't, Tom who? You know, doubting Thomas. Oh, yes. You know, imagine if it was the case for you. And I had to think really carefully now about these names. Because I was trying to think very, very hard about people in the church. And so if by some strange coincidence your name comes up in the next minute or two, then please forgive me, lying Lucy. Terrified Terry. Oh, there is a Terry. I just realized. Just sat over there. Sorry, Terry. <laughs> it's not you. I didn't think about you. Lazy Liam. Gossipy Georgia. Too lazy to get out of bed in the morning, has terrible breath, dress sense, and relies too heavily on sarcasm to mask his insecurities. Ted. How awful would it be? You see, and in John chapter 20, in verse 25 to 29, we read about Thomas and why he was doubting. Let's read it together. It says this, So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the story so far is the Easter story. Jesus has died his horrible death on the cross. And three days later, Mary Magdalene, one of the followers, and if you actually look at the history of the time, it's amazing that it was Mary Magdalene of of all people, actually went to the tomb to anoint the body as per the tradition. And she sees and she puts and looks into the tomb and sees the tomb is empty, that, that Jesus is not there and his grave clothes have been folded and put into place. And so she runs to tell the disciples, but Thomas isn't with them. Peter and John run to the tombstone. It's very interesting. You look at the accounts. Peter and John are running, and and John clearly is a faster runner than Peter because he gets to the tomb before him. But Peter probably is a little bit more brave than John because it says that Peter goes into the tomb. And he discovers two amazing miracles. The first one is that a man... A single man in his 30s tidied up his clothes after him. That's the first miracle. The second miracle, more magnificent than that, is that Jesus Christ wasn't there, that he had been resurrected from the dead. And Jesus started to appear to the disciples regularly for the next few days. And he appeared to the disciples, but again, Thomas wasn't there. So the disciples tell Thomas about the appearances, and then we have what we've just read. Thomas going, you know what, I I don't believe that. I don't believe it. In verse 25, it says, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I'm just going to push this slightly to the side so they can see it on the video. Sorry, Josh. Oh. Okay. I will never believe. I will never believe. Wow. Wow. What a statement. I've been uh, speaking a long time now. Um, so I'm, I'm 45, and so I started speaking when I was about 18. And in my early 20s, um, I was starting to be asked to speak in different places. And so I had the privilege of going to speak in a, a quite a well-known large church. Uh, and for a young adult at the time who was still kind of fumbling his way through this craft, uh, much like today... Um, that I went and I was on my best behavior. I wore my best clothes. I, I turned up and I practiced my best super spiritual preacher voice. You know, and, 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 and after the sermon that I don't remember to this day, I was asked to go into the, into the, uh, the study, the, the pastor's study with Sarah. We'd been married just a little while. This was pre-kids. And we went and we were on our best behavior. And it's like, thank you very much. Yes, bless you. And it's wonderful. Well, I really appreciate that. You're so kind. You know, all those things that you, you practice to say. And, and, uh, and then I saw we were doing really well. And then, I, and then I heard Sarah chatting with this other lady, uh, and, you know, which, is, which is fine and great. And then, and then I heard Sarah say, oh, when's the baby due? At which point the lady answered, what baby? And my whole life just seemed to 
collapse. As Sarah, bless her, tried to scramble her way out of a situation that, let's face it, is impossible to get yourself out of. Because how do you recover from that? So we left hastily, and I was never invited back. I always thought it was because of my sermon, but maybe, maybe not. Now, I have to be uh, careful in, in sharing these things when it comes to things that you regret to say, because I've certainly said things that I regret, and Sarah was like, well, how long have you got if you want examples? But my favorite, we were sharing this story with, uh, with, with Wendy and Grant, and uh, <laughs> our lovely Wendy and Grant. And we were laughing about this, and Wendy went, oh, she said, I can beat that. I was like, oh good, as I get my notebook out and write down it for future illustrations. She said, we were, we were in a, so forgive me, I'm paraphrasing, but we were staying in a hotel at one time and we went into an elevator and there was this lady stood next to us in an elevator and what was a long journey up and, and Wendy being Wendy, and we all know and love you Wendy, but Wendy being Wendy said to this lady, she went, oh, she said, when's the baby due? But didn't stop there, right? You rubbed her stomach. what baby oh I love that you know I I am quite convinced in the providence of God God set that up because he knew that Glenn would need an illustration and then she said then you said you had to stand there in awkward silence on the whole elevator ride up I love that on the level of things that you regret to say that's up there but Thomas I will never believe Is he going to regret saying that? I will never believe. You see, Thomas isn't alone in his doubts in the Gospels and in the Scriptures. We've got John the Baptist, who's Jesus' own cousin, who said to, to, he sent messengers to Jesus and said, are you really the Messiah? He had the doubts. Then you've got Job, 37 chapters of Job. Job confessing his doubts to God. Matthew 28, verse 17, Jesus is actually ascending back up to heaven in front of a crowd. He's he's died, he's risen again, he's ascending back to heaven. And the scriptures say, you can read it, Matthew 28, verse 17, and some still doubted. He's rising up in front of them. And there's people there going, well, you know, I got a cousin who can do that. Pretty sure there's some cables, you know, very David Copperfield. But you know what, I'm, I'm just going to reserve my judgment and keep my mind open and, and maybe rely on goat yoga. Like, that's a thing. Did you know that? I've heard about goat yoga. But really, the fact that Jesus is rising up in front of them is still not enough. They still doubted. How about you? Is Jesus who he said he was to you or are you doubting? You see, Thomas was surrounded by people who were devoted and they believed and they were passionate and they were excited. The disciples said, look, this has happened, this is true and maybe that's, that's you, that you're surrounded. Maybe you have a spouse or friend or you've just been coming to church and you're like, man, these people are really excited about this. They really believe, but I'm not there. I, I doubt this. Why did Thomas doubt that Jesus rose again? It's a very simple reason. And it's the same reason that people have today. Dead people don't get out of their graves. It was as crazy then as it is today. Dead people don't rise again. That's why Thomas doubted. Now, you need to understand, though, Thomas really wanted to believe. 
He wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. He wanted Jesus to be that political hero that came and relieved them from the Roman oppression. He wanted Jesus to be who he said he was. He wanted Jesus to be God because everything he'd had over the last few years was pointed to that truth. But how can it be that Jesus was Messiah? How could it be that Jesus was God when he had died such a horrible, shame-filled death? And it shook Thomas. He wanted to believe. And maybe you want to believe this morning. Christians, you might be struggling in your belief. Like the scripture says that your first love has maybe gone cold, that you've forgotten it. Then you're struggling to believe the reality of the gospel in your life on a day-to-day basis. You've looked at other things, business, money, family, interest, leisure, health, whatever it might be. And you've gone, maybe that's still the answer. All the time knowing that inside you're desperately wanting to believe, just like Thomas. But you have your doubts. For those of you who aren't sure what you believe yet, and you're just truth-seeking, that's wonderful. But... Maybe like you say, I want to believe, but I have my doubts. The Bible seems to contradict itself. Science seems to contradict faith. And by the way, if you want to hear a sermon about just that, Psalm 8 sermon last summer that I preached addresses that specifically. But the Bible seems to contradict itself. Glenn, I have my doubts. A flood? Really? Joshua singing down a wall? I mean, my singing's bad, but that's what? Really? You believe that? Hell, an eternal, forever damnation for people who don't believe in Jesus. You really believe that, Glenn? I have my doubts. I haven't got my doubts. I'm just. Glenn, have you met some Christians? Bit mental. Got to be honest. Really, you, you believe you believe in all this, Glenn? How can there be a loving God when there's so much pain? What about the dinosaurs? What about the outdated teaching on on sexuality and homosexuality and and how we uh, treat sex? You really believe that in this day and age, Glenn? You really believe that? Just the story itself of Jesus, you really believe that, Glenn? And to that I will totally and completely unapologetically say yes. Because Jesus gives an answer to Thomas that I believe in. But it's not an answer that you would expect. Look at what Jesus said to Thomas in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I love that. I I feel that Jesus was a little bit sarcastic, because just imagine if you were there, and Jesus just appears in in front of you, you, in peace. Yeah, right. That would be be tough. Fear and running around, yes, that's probably more like it. But Jesus says, Peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, my Lord, my God. You see the change? There's this revelation that happens inside of Thomas. That he goes from doubting to devoted. He, goes, he shifts from, I will never believe, to exclaiming, my Lord, my God, my Messiah, and my God. He is now totally convinced. What's changed? Did Jesus sit him down and go, okay, Thomas, let's start from the beginning. Let's look at these so-called contradictions. Because Thomas, if you actually read the Bible in its entirety, and you look at what it actually says, there are no contradictions in this, Thomas. And to that, I would say a hearty Amen. 
You know, he didn't present a new philosophy. He didn't give him a new set of ideas. He didn't give him answers to his challenges. He didn't calm his fears. There was no answers to any questions at all. Because Jesus knew that even if he rose right in front of people, that still would not be enough for people. See, what Jesus actually did is he pointed to an event, not to an an explanation. He pointed to his resurrection, not to an explanation. He points to an event. You see, Christians are devoted to an event, not an explanation. Because an explanation requires no faith. An explanation can easily be countered and explained away. See, I could spend time with you, if you're a skeptic, answering all your questions. It still would not be enough. In fact, as we've seen in Scripture, you could see a miracle and you would still doubt. So Jesus doesn't give him an explanation. He gives him an event to look at. And believing this event changes everything. Thomas saw that Jesus rose from the dead and now he knew that Jesus was everything he said he was. So, like me, you will say, yeah, well... If I was Thomas and I saw that, then I'd be convinced as well. And Jesus has an answer to that. He says, because you have seen and believed. You see, people who are coming after you won't see what you've seen, Thomas, and they're more blessed. See, they will believe in this resurrection. See, I can't argue and convince you into believing in Jesus. You need to experience an event. And experiencing this event changes everything. You need to believe it because it proves everything Jesus said about himself was true. And if everything Jesus said about himself was true, it means there is an eternity and it would be foolish to ignore that. If Jesus is who he said he was, it means that he is God. If Jesus is who he said he was, it means that he came to earth and lived the perfect life that you and I want to live, but are incapable of living. And if Jesus is who he said he was, they took his body, scourged him for hours to the point of death, Scripture says. And I've said this many times from the pulpit, we have made the crucifixion this clean thing that we're happy to hang around our neck. The reality is, It was a brutal and shame-filled death. The Romans didn't want to just kill you. They wanted to destroy you and shame your family. The scourging itself would, would, with the cat of nine tails, with glass and bone and steel placed into the threads of leather, slashed across his back, pulled across, would remove ribs. It's been known to take out organs. And then he was hung on a cross where he slowly suffocated in his own blood to the point of death. It means if Jesus said is who he said he was, it means he did that for you and for me. Why? Because my sin is so shameful. My guilt is so deep. My struggle is so sincere. My pursuit for peace is so all-encompassing that it needed something as horrible as a cross death. 
that my sin placed on his body and his body dying, my sin dying with that, taking the punishment that I deserve and then in rising from the dead, not only proving what he said was to be true, it shows that new life is given to me, righteousness, right standing with God, that I can stand before God and I can be accepted, I can be loved and I can be one with the family. All that's true if Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, it means what he said about him being the only way to God is true. Yeah, but Glenn, I'm not Thomas. I wasn't there. All I have to go with is what the Bible says. You see, for me, I look at the Bible and I see compelling evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. How do I know that Jesus truly rose from the dead? Well, the Bible says so. And Jesus said the Bible is true. And now you might go, oh, hang on a second. (laughs) You're putting a lot of emphasis on the scriptures that I don't know whether I believe is true, Glenn. You know, it's a little bit like me saying, I'm the smartest man in the world. And you would say, how do you know? And I would say, well, I'm the smartest man in the world. I know these things. And you would go, what? Because I believe Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible says so. Why do I believe what the Bible says? Well, Jesus said it was true. Okay, why do you believe that Jesus said it was true? Well, because he said he was who he said he was because the Bible says so. Well, okay, well, why do you believe the Bible's true again? Well, because Jesus said so. And, And can you see? Whoa, brain explodes. So why do I believe that the Bible is the word of God? As I said a couple of weeks ago, there is compelling evidence to show that these scriptures are true. Very, very briefly, I'm going to give you a 50,000 foot flyby as to why I believe the Bible is true for today. First of all, as I mentioned in my sermon a couple of weeks ago, the style of the writing is totally in keeping with factual historical writing. That the style of the writing in the New Testament is not fiction of the time. That there have been non-Christians People, we need to understand, we have this weird view that, and it's just natural for being human, that we're very, very intelligent. We just have that belief about ourselves, that we know what we're talking about, and that's, that's fine. But we have to understand and acknowledge that people who are far, far more intellectual and genius have examined this because it's in their interest to disprove it. For thousands of years and have failed to do so. And so one of the things that they've done is they've looked at the style of writing and they've found that this is not in keeping with the fiction style of the time. So either the gospel writers jumped ahead 2,000 years and started writing fiction in the same style as we do now or they have written it in an evidential historical way, an eyewitness account way and that is in keeping with the writing of the day. The time in which the Gospels were written are all within a few years of Jesus' death. Well, maybe it was just constructed in a lie. You have to understand if that was the case, that too would have been pulled apart by equal eyewitnesses against it. In Acts chapter 4, Peter has just preached the sermon of his life and the leaders of the time have brought him before him and they're listening to Peter talk about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And it says this, and I quote in Acts chapter 4, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
Do you not think they would line up eyewitnesses to say, hey, Peter, that what you just said is not true? Because these hundreds of people were, they were there and they didn't see what you said. They weren't able to because of the number of eyewitnesses. In Strobel's excellent book, The Case for Resurrection, he quotes historians, one of which uh, Dr. Habermas said this, the quote, and I quote, the evidence is so good that even skeptical scholars are convinced by it. Let's face it. There's a greater likelihood that a purported historical fact is true when someone accepts it even though they're not in agreement with your metaphysical beliefs. In other words, I want this to be untrue, but I can't because history shows that it is true. An extre- quote again, even an extreme liberal like John Dominic Crossan says this, quote, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical ever can be. Skeptic James Tabor said, I think we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, he was truly dead. Both Gerd Ludman and an atheist non-Testament critic and Bart Ehrman, who's an agnostic, call the crucifixion an indisputable fact. You see, you can't look at the scripture and go, oh, this is all made up. But more than that, here's how I know the Bible to be true. These men and women lived and died proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it cost them everything. They were cast out. They were persecuted. They were hunted down. They were tortured. They were killed. Thomas himself was executed in India. Paul was decapitated. Stephen was stoned. All the apostles died horrible deaths. Why would they do that for a lie? Why would they do that? You see, when you lie, there's a motive. They had no motive. They had nothing to gain. See, Peter denied Jesus in front of a little girl while Jesus was alive. But after his resurrection, he stood in front of the leaders of the day and declared the truth of the resurrection. What changed? It wasn't an explanation. It was an event. He experienced an event. So much so that Peter pleaded with his executioners not to be executed like Jesus, but to turn the cross upside down on which he was crucified because he wasn't worthy to be killed like his Savior. What changed? Was he just suddenly convinced of the facts? Did they pull to each other together and go, here's a great lie? Or was it the possibility that he actually saw Jesus alive and everything he said about himself was true? And that's just the Bible times. Millions of people have died for the faith of Jesus Christ. So how do you respond? If Jesus did rise from the dead, that means that everything he said is also true. How do you respond to that? Let me just talk to the Christian family just for a second. If if this is true, friends... Surely we can never put Jesus as secondary in our life. Surely he can never be unnecessary. He always has to be ultimate. If Jesus said what he said, and it's true, and you really believe that, surely he becomes ultimate in our families. He becomes ultimate in our businesses. He becomes ultimate in our relationship. He becomes ultimate in what we speak. He becomes ultimate in our conviction and commitment to the church family. He becomes ultimate in our commitment to spending time with him daily. He becomes ultimate in every area. If we really believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we really believe that as Christians that our life hinges on that, then why aren't we living like that? 
Surely the day has to come where we have to get serious before our Lord and we need to get on our knees and cry out and confess that we have made other things ultimate and made him unnecessary. See, as joyful as the resurrection day is, and it is, it also is convicting because it means that Jesus is true and his promises are real. That his presence is with us. His provision is real. His power is strong. His strength in us is, is there and evident and real every day. And hope and peace and all those beautiful promises are ours and live in us. And we take that into a broken and needy world. Surely we have a responsibility to live out the resurrection on a daily basis. And it hugely convicts me and causes me to pray. That God would renew us, convict us, forgive us for making other things ultimate and Him unnecessary. What would our city look like if you, South Family, just for a little while, even just for a week, there's enough of you in here, what would our city look like if we actually lived out our life believing what Jesus said was true? And he said, pick up your cross and follow after me. You would find yourself speaking. You would find yourself going up to groups of people and and praying with them and, and speaking with them and living out life in front of them. That when you have conversations with your wife or your husband, you wouldn't be going, well, should we, you know, should we go to church this week? You'd be running to church because of the adventures that you'd had in the week. You'd want to go and share it with someone. You wouldn't be going, well, have we got time this week? Well, the baby hasn't been sleeping very well, so maybe we should just, oh, just drag him along. That's what we used to do. <laughs> buy an ankle. No joke, just never buy an ankle. Is he ultimate or is he unnecessary? Is Jesus ultimate or is he unnecessary? For those who aren't sure what to believe, where are you placing your confidence? Because Jesus Christ rose in newness of life, in victory, of the promise of joy and peace and hope, forgiveness for all the things that you have done wrong. He promises this through the cross, that as we come to him, we confess our sins and we ask him to, to, uh, to accept us, to, to forgive us, then his life floods into us. And all those things that you've been looking for suddenly become yours by promise. And maybe like Thomas, you come in with questions, but I've introduced to you an event and said you put your faith in that event that maybe like Thomas, you'll say, my Lord, my God, and it will change your life now and for eternity, forever. And you can live that out on a daily basis. And that's why I do what I do, because I love to see the transformation that happens in people's lives. So in finishing, let me just say one thing to you. In believing what this Bible says, that by the way, those seeming contradictions, those tough, doubt-filled questions you have are great to talk about. And, the, and there are answers for all of them. And you have a whole eternity to ask those questions. You know, you can line up after me and say, okay, Paul, can we talk about Romans 9? How did that actually work? You can ask those questions. It's beautiful and wonderful. But Jesus said this, the whole Bible says this, that you and I are separated from God outside of Jesus. That God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. And our sin separates because he has, can have nothing to do with that sin. Scriptures say that. Well, surely a loving God would forgive us all. Well, you've got to remember the same Bible that says that he's loving also says that he's holy and perfect. 
And so that holy perfection, that justice in God, cannot be just swallowed up. Otherwise, he just ceases to be God. But he came up with a way. He came up with a plan. And his name was Jesus. So he sent Jesus. Jesus said the root of all our problems in life is that separation from God, that sin, that we're not living in alignment with the design that we were created to be. And the story of the Bible is simply this. It can be broken down. There's bad news, really bad news, I should say. Good news, really good news. So let me finish with this. And this is why we go, Christians, running joyfully, leaping Fist pumping the air. That's the final song. The bad news is this. You're a sinner. It separates you from God. And that separation is eternal. It's not temporary. Regardless of what you might have heard even in the news this week. It is forever. That's what Jesus said. That's the bad news. And forever you will not know him nor be in his presence. For some people, hell has already started. There's a present wrath and an eternal wrath, Romans says. For some people, hell, you might be feeling like you're living in hell. Let me tell you, it's because of this sin in your life. That's the bad news. The really bad news is there is nothing you can do about it. Nothing. No amount of good life, good thoughts, giving to charity, positive mental attitude, helping little kittens and orphans, whatever it might be, Living in a certain way, doing certain things, saying certain things, thinking a certain way, shoveling your neighbor's driveway. All this is, this is good, but not any of those things are actually going to close that gap between you and God. That's the really bad news. The good news is this, and it's great news. God, in his love and mercy, sent his son to live the perfect life that we are unable to live because of the sin the life we should live. And he died the death that we deserve to die through the punishment that God justly gives. That's the good news. He gave us his life. That's the good news. And the really good news is this. You don't have to work for it. It's a gift. It's literally submitting to that gift that you can leave this place this morning living out that truth, the bad news, the really bad news, the good news, the really good news. The truth is that you can live that out and it's a gift. And John 1 verse 12 tells us how we do it. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. How do you do it? You do what Thomas did. You look at the event and you say, yes, I I believe. I have my doubts. I I have my questions. But the essence is I feel and believe. I can sense that there's truth in this. And you come, even in our final song today, and you ask for forgiveness. You take Jesus at his word and you say, forgive me for making you unnecessary and your life changes forever. Or you go, no, you have to make a decision. You really do. You have to say Jesus was a complete phony and a liar or he was quite mad or he's Lord. You have to camp out on one of those. And if he's Lord then you have to do what I just said and come to him and ask for forgiveness for making him unnecessary rather than ultimate. If he's a liar and a phony, very few people are willing to put their neck out and say that. 
But by not submitting, you are already committing to one of those two things. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Sarah, uh, sorry, Josh, and to come and just lead us in a little bit of time of worship while I pray, and then the band are going to come up and we're going to sing together. I want us to close our eyes. I'm going to invite you to take part in a moment that will literally reshape the rest of your life in eternity.